Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Winamp. Subscribe to Security Now and all your favorite podcasts with the ultimate media player. Download it for free at winamp.com. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 259, recorded July 28th, 2010. Q&A number 97. Security Now is brought to you by Carbonite. Backing up the files on your PC or Mac is safe and easy with Carbonite. For a free trial plus two free months with purchase, go to Carbonite.com. Offer code SECURITYNOW. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your security online. Uh, your privacy, too. And, of course, the guy who does this all for us is the great Steve Gibson of GRC.com, creator of SpinRight, and many free utilities for security. Hey, Steve. Hey, Leo. Great to be with you again, as always. Great to see you. This is going to be a big week because uh, Black Hat and DEF CON are going on in Vegas right as we speak. Right. Well, actually, a little bit after we speak, um, but the, this coming week. Oh, weekend, yeah. Hackers don't get up early. <laughs> this coming, yeah, they're late nights and uh, and, and not early mornings. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's um, many things have have actually been sort of synchronized with this. Um, we will talk today about one of the most newsworthy events, really, of many years, which is a weakness has been found in our beloved WPA and WPA2 Wi-Fi encryption protocol. We know that that was, and was created in order to replace WEP, which was not well designed. Um, unfortunately, it turns out that there's a, there's a problem. Well, it's not a serious problem, but we'll talk about that. And my, my point is that it's, it's being disclosed in full this weekend. Right. And, um, there are a number of other um, new vulnerabilities that are being disclosed. And in fact, the Mozilla folks, cognizant of the fact that, you know, they may be in the spotlight, have already said after actually a very busy couple of weeks, they've they revved Firefox twice since we last spoke, Leo. Um, we, we left it at 3.6.6. It went to 0.7 and to 0.8 between the last week and now as they've been fixing lots of things that we'll talk about. But but they've said they're like watching DEF CON and the Black Hat Conference and will immediately revise Firefox to fix anything that is revealed there. Mm. So this is sort of a new model for our industry is that, you know, the idea that that c- companies are following the um, the security vulnerability confabs and saying, "Okay, well, we're ready to uh, to deal quickly with whatever arises." So, Very interesting. That's crazy. They've yeah. got their fingers poised over the keyboard, ready for the. <laughs> we'll fix it. We'll fix it. <laughs> right. So um, it has been a busy week. We can start talking about. Uh, uh, updates to security there's been a few things before you do i just wanted to mention i don't know if you saw it and i know you're very good about not talking about vitamin d even though you did a great episode which everybody should listen to but the the new york times the new york times on monday 
mm-hmm. completely confirmed everything you've said. Yeah. Everything you've said. It was interesting to be reading it, and it's like, yeah, any of our listeners a year ago yep. found out about everything that was that was just mentioned. Yeah, really, really. Uh, I mean, that, I guess that. You know, Jane Brody, who's the the health and nutrition writer at the New York Times, I think is very good. I've followed her for years. She wrote this article. It was published on Monday. And um, if you if if you want a synopsis of everything Steve said, it's it's right there. And uh, and and I would recommend you go back and listen to that episode because it was a great episode. And it's available uh, on Steve's site or at twit.tv slash sn. Just search for vitamin D. You'll find it. Anyway, I wanted to mention that because you deserve credit. And I know you wouldn't bring it up, but uh, you you rang the bell on that one. Yep. Um, and I've got some other stuff to talk about. I, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to do, uh, we, there've been a lot of interest in, you know, what I've been noodling around about in the health area. And, uh, so we need to do a podcast about my last year. Cause I'm Good. almost, almost at the end of a year of study of something else that has produced some tremendous results. And, uh, it'll be much less of a, uh, this is what I think everyone should do because one of the things that I've really developed an appreciation for is how different everyone is. Yeah. And so th- there isn't any single advice that it, it's possible to give a broad audience of people. The one thing that doctors get right, I think, is to ask you about your family history because it matters so much. You know, we're, we're just all so different genetically and 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 that directly bears on 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 the consequences of nutrition and supplements and you know how our bodies interact with the environment but you know with with that understanding i do have a really really fascinating story to tell so Good. We'll, we'll you and i'll have to make some time maybe we'll do as soon s- as you're do, d- done done with all your summer travels yeah in august uh, middle of august we'll do a separate show we won't make it a security yep. now show but we'll, we'll note not we'll note that it's available on security now so if you listen to this show you'll see it we'll tweet it we'll put it on the twit site and everything yeah i'd yep. very much like to do that with you steve I, I, I'm gonna. You're, you'll you'll be really fascinated. Can't wait. So, oh, now you're such, be... a <laughs> such a tease. So we're two fifty nine. Q and A number ninety seven today, and uh, uh, we did have, uh, as I mentioned, uh, people should check with Firefox. Um, again, mine. I don't know what happens. I, it sort of seems like if I check under the help menu, it'll say continue downloading an update but and maybe it's the fact that i leave it running for like days on end and it kind of gets stuck or something but i had to shut it down manually download download 3.6.8 and then run the installer upgrade and then restart it so it just wasn't keeping up on its own Mm. and i mean i was at 3.6.4 and so these updates have been coming fast and furious from from Firefox, and also this this pertains to SeaMonkey and Thunderbird. Um, they with three point w- with three point six point seven, they fixed fourteen security holes, seven of which were critical. When I looked at the list of URLs for like the CVE list that we talked about last week, the common vulnerabilities um, uh, list, I thought, oh my goodness, and I didn't want to click on all of them, so I just thought I would. Take the the excellent summary that Sans Security Newsletter produced, and just share that with our listeners to give you some sense for what this is. Sans 
assembled this and said, Mozilla has recently patched several vulnerabilities, some of which may allow hackers to execute arbitrary code on a client's machine. The specific vulnerabilities include several memory safety bugs in the browser engine, some of which may be exploitable for code execution. A problem running content scripts allows an attacker to execute arbitrary JavaScript code with Chrome privileges, meaning full browser privileges, an integer overflow vulnerability in the handling of CSS scripts, Mm -hmm. an integer overflow in the handling of the XUL tree element, a buffer overflow in the graphics handling code, a problem in Firefox's handling of recursive attribute nodes, a problem with Firefox's method for parsing child elements of a particular tag, and a memory corruption vulnerability in Firefox's node... node... Node to relator interface. Whatever that the old, is. The old node to relator <laughs> Oh, yeah, I got the node to relators on trouble Eight, here. Those memory corruptions when they happen. Yeah. There. yeah. So, you know, just update. <laughs> <laughs> just, just stay current. Um, uh, iTunes had, an, had a uh, remote. Uh, uh, remote. Remotely executable problem in their ITPC URL. They have they have, you know, in, in very much like HTTP or FTP or so, so forth, that uh, I, uh, Apple's iTunes has the URL tag type ITPC, which stands for iTunes Podcast. Right. In fact, if you uh, try to subscribe on our site to one of to this show, for instance, and you do the drop down subscribe, it has you'll see ITPC it's that colon kind of slash slash. Yes. And what happens is when you install iTunes, it registers that URI and uh, and automatically launches when you click that link. So it's very handy. Right. And it turns out that there was a problem in the way they were handling it. iTunes had been handling it uh, that could remote in could, could result in arbitrary remote code execution. So oh. they fixed it. And again, it's a there's a it's a soup of version updates depending upon whether you're at nine or nine point two. Or whatever. So whatever you've got, you just want to make sure that it's current, you know. And you can, it'll just if you, if you're on a Mac, of course, you know, check check for um, any new software, and it'll find it for you. And I think mine updated like over the weekend. So, um, and Google has taken Chrome forward again. Uh, now we're at five point zero point three seven five point one two five, and Google is as always being tight lipped about what they've done. Uh, five vulnerabilities were patched. Three, they rated as high, although our friends Secunia, who we talked about last week, uh, rated the combined update as, quote, highly critical, unquote. Mm. Um, there are rumors that that Google also reached out and fixed some problems that were actually not theirs. Specifically, apparently Linux's glibc library had some problems that that they took that Chrome took some sort of preemptive responsibility for, and there's also some rumor that they did something like to work with a problem in the Windows kernel, but no one's talking. So, you know, I'm I'm glad they're on top of it and moving the browser forward as everybody is doing these days constantly. So the big news. Uh, that flooded my own inbox from our listeners was, um, th- unfortunately, uh, again, sort of some overblown headlines 
about WPA2, WPA, the protocol that protects Wi-Fi encryption being broken. We won't know all the details until it's demonstrated and shown at this weekend's Black Hat conference, uh, which will be happening you know, within a few days. I'm not going to go into it in extensive detail at this point, but we've never really looked at the WPA protocol to the same depth that we did WEP. And it seems to me that that's you know, a, a spectacularly good topic for, for us to tackle in this podcast. So I imagine before long, I'm going to want to do a podcast on WPA. What I can tell you is that, that this is a problem with, that, that arises from the fact that we were attempting, we, the industry, were attempting to put a, an encryption wrapper around ethernet and you know the idea being that that we have an existing ethernet network we an ethernet protocol and we want to we want to add encryption to that but because it's sort of a wrapper on top of it that is we can't change the underlying ethernet protocol but we want to encrypt it so in web this wasn't a problem because everybody who was on a web node had the same key. And one of the mistakes the web designers made was that key was directly used to drive the encryption, which meant that everybody on the same web encrypted access point was using the same key, was generating compatible key streams using the RC4 cipher, which which essentially meant that we were all part of one big LAN. Hmm. And because it was, because as, and we've talked about this before, because it's radio, everybody can see, hear, and talk to everybody else. So there was no inter-client privacy. That is, when you, uh, under WEP, when you accessed an access point that everybody else was accessing, you were also see, able to see their traffic. Well, so the designers of WPA understood cryptography to a much greater degree. And one of the, one of the fundamental real guidelines of crypto is you never expose your master key. That is, you don't directly use you, that key you use derivatives of that key. And I mean, that's, that's just now part of, of, of common correct practice in, in crypto. Well, the designers also said, you know, while we're at it, let's enhance the privacy of, of users of the same access point. So there's a, the, the master key that, people have for accessing a WPA network, first of all, it is never itself used to perform crypto, but it's used in a, in a, in a negotiation handshake at the beginning when you're like, when, when, when you're setting up your relationship, when a client is setting up a relationship with the, with the access point, the master key is used to derive the keys that you actually use. 
which are retired sort of for various reasons at different times. Well, the problem with creating privacy is that that Ethernet isn't. That is, Ethernet, remember which... By definition. (laughs) Well, yes. And there's specifically, there's something called a broadcast in Ethernet, and there's multicast. And anyone on an Ethernet can, by definition of Ethernet, broadcast to everyone else. So the designers of the WPA protocol had a problem because they wanted to isolate individual users of the access point but at the same time they had to support all the functionality of ethernet because they had to be a transparent wrapper on top of ethernet that is to support the underlying protocol so what they did was they created a pair of keys per client the so-called ptk the pairwise transient key Pairwise meaning it it links a it, it it cryptographically protects a pair meaning your conversation uniquely your conversation to the access point and but then the problem was how do you send something to everybody so they had to have a group a group wise transient key called the GTK which is inherently shared by everyone. And that's the chink in the armor that that um, the air airnet security guys. Um, it's not airnet. It's uh, I can't think of their name. I didn't write it down here in front of me. Um, uh, well, <laughs> um, it's easy to find um, uh, on on the net. The the guys who are going to be presenting at um, Black Hat uh, f- figured out a way to to take advantage of this group-wise transient key. That is, and all we know about it is that that they're using the fact that this allows broadcasts to spoof the MAC address of the access point, send a packet to another client on the WPA network, and get that client somehow to reveal its PTK, its private pairwise transient key, which is specifically used for talking to the access point. And that's not something that we want to have happen. Okay, but but understand that what this means, and here's the point of all this, is this doesn't allow somebody roaming the street outside to access anything. It What this is, is this is a breach of privacy among clients that are already authenticated on that WPA or WPA2 network. So so what it means is it, you know, we're one of the nice things that WPA offers is some some enhanced privacy which you'd like to have because you're in the air, your your radio. And we know that radio is a bad start in terms of privacy. So so WPA created in cryptographic isolation among users of the same access point. This breaks that so that 
one user, and apparently it breaks it badly. I mean, it's like a simple thing to do once you uh, once you get this, when, once you know what the hack is, it's like, oh, 10 lines of code. So, so what this means, though, is that it isn't, it doesn't allow someone outside who is not authenticated on WPA, who doesn't have the master key um, to get in. It only allows somebody who's already on that access point, who is authenticated, who has been, who is now sharing this broadcast key, the groupwise transient key. It allows them to get somebody else's PTK, pairwise transient key. And unfortunately, at that point, they can play all kinds of mischief. They can, for example, probably do ARP spoofing and insert themselves with a man in the middle or at least do, we don't know that for sure. We won't know the details until we see what these guys have done. But it would have certainly allowed them to snoop anyone else's traffic. Now, uh, on the other hand, Ethernet sort of always allows that. So, you know, hubs have always allowed you to see everybody else's traffic. Ethernet switches are better at isolating that, but they're not they're not guaranteeing isolation. So there's a sort of an implied trust with the Ethernet protocol about anybody who's on the same LAN. And, you know, there's not that much privacy there. And we've talked a lot about how, how simple ARP spoofing attacks are that allow re, you know, man, a, a person to insert themselves into traffic bound for and from a gateway into other people's streams. So, yeah, so... Encryption has, you know, WPA, the best encryption we have now for wireless, has been dented a little bit. Um, and once we see the nature, the details of this, uh, we'll be able to get a better sense for how bad it is. But it do, it certainly does not mean that the that the that AES is broken or WPA no longer protects robustly against somebody who does not have the key. This is only a privacy problem among people who are authenticated on the same access point. I learned from um, uh, a, a frequent contributor to my uh, Twitter stream uh, who goes by the handle Captain Caveman. You're loving Twitter, aren't you? I really am, actually. And I've been meaning to say, I get... A great deal of very useful information from the, I don't know if I'm at 13,000 yet. I was approaching it some time ago. Um, number of people who have who have um, uh, subscribed to my SGGRC Twitter account. Um, it's, uh, I get, you know, I read everything that is sent because there's not that much of it at this point, which is good. But I, but I really appreciate the, the you know, I mean, there's a, huge number of people who are involved in security and this kind of stuff and and they often see run across things before i do so that's, that's i think you're using twitter in the best possible way which is um you know a, a small group you don't want a million people you want a small group of people who have the same interest that you do and and it's a conversation between you of knowledgeable people and and then for those of us on the outside see we'll follow that saying, I know where I can go to get great security conversation. I'm going to follow uh, Steve and follow the people Steve follows, which you can also do. You might look at using the Twitter lists feature. If you've got 
20 or 30 really good security sources that you're following that you want to share with the world, uh, you can make a list of that and call it, you know, security sources. And people can then subscribe en masse to that. And that's very mm. useful. I really uh, would appreciate anytime you feel like doing that. That's very useful. Well, what's, I, I guess what's, what's um, different about what I'm doing is that I'm not following anyone. Oh, and, and well, then so, that wouldn't be very useful. <laughs> no, I, I'm not following anyone. And I recognize it, then it's a pain for for people to send me stuff. Well, you don't want the, direct messages. They have to send you stuff via at SGGRC, right? Yes. Yeah. And and so they do. I get it. I read it. So I wanted to make sure everyone knows that, I mean, every single one of those that comes in, I do read and I try to acknowledge um, when I can. Um, but it's just, so it's a fantastic uh, source of information for me. Anyway, he was the first person who notified me that, Sophos, the well-known security company, had developed a free blocker for this very bad Windows shell link zero-day exploit that we talked about last week. So I wanted to point everybody at it. We, we talked about Microsoft's temporary fix, which is... Um, in fact, we have a Q&A question about it today, which is really uh, a mixed blessing. You know, they say turn off the display of all of the um, shortcut icons within Windows, you know, across all of Windows. Uh-huh. And it's, it's a problem. Sophos, S-O-P-H-O-S dot com, uh, has a free tool which is... Very comprehensive and very nice. I tweeted about it a few days ago. Actually, the moment I after I checked it out from Captain Caveman uh, uh, telling me about it and and looked at it carefully and looked at what they had done, they 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 just produced a very nice solution. So it is a workaround until Microsoft fixes it for Windows. XP Service Pack 3 and later, mm. but it is probably also uh, exactly what I was hoping for, for XP and XP Service Packs prior to 3, for example, Service Pack 2, where several of my, of my machines are stuck. Unfortunately, they do explicitly say that it does not support Windows 2000. So so Windows 2000 will remain vulnerable uh at least until somebody else comes out with something that fixes it, uh, the, the Sophos tool will help people who have Service Pack 2, which Microsoft presumably is never going to fix, never going to patch. Uh-huh. It would be wonderful if they did because this thing is so bad. And, by the way, worms have started to appear. Much oh, really? As we expect. Oh, yes. Boy. Yes. Uh, um, uh, the guys at Previx, P-R-E-V-X.com, in their blog uh, they were the first to indicate that they have. They are now seeing the .lnk viruses and worms are now in the wild exploiting this, and we can expect over the next couple of weeks that it's going to go crazy. So you, th- th- that is beginning to happen. Do you think the Sophos patch is uh, preferable to the Microsoft workaround? Yes, I do, because um, it it inserts itself into the shell's display of the of the shortcut mm-hmm. and it is comprehensive in in this much as for example it handles all different vectors for exploitation and you get to keep your shortcuts 
I mean, it, if you do this thing that Microsoft wants, even using the little fix-it button, suddenly a huge number of icons in your system go white. Right. And so, oh, so like, this well, doesn't do that. Oh, that's no, good. this th th this allows you to keep the display. What it does is it checks the it checks the shortcut on the fly before Windows has a chance before Windows gets to it before it it passes it essentially to the shell. It verifies wow. that it's benign and is not going to cause this problem. That's great. Good fix. So it's good work. Very around. nice yeah. fix. So I wanted to let all of our our listeners know that. Uh, there is something that they can use. Oh, and it installs and uninstalls very cleanly. So once Microsoft, if they do an, an out-of-cycle patch, if they feel it's that bad, um, then uh, we'll have a, quick, uh, a fix more quickly. Otherwise, I would hope that for the second Tuesday of August that we'll be getting this thing fixed in Microsoft's normal cycle, in which case you can just easily go in to add, remove programs and take the Sophos patch out because you won't need it any longer. So as, a, it's an, as an interim solution, it looks like it's a great idea. Excellent. And I got a kick out of this. Someone sent me a, uh, a screenshot. Again, this came back. This came to me through Twitter. A screenshot uh, of Twitter's own SSL cert expired. Oh. It, I mean, it, it happens to the best of us. It happened to me not long ago. We may remember. On, on, and then the screenshot was a picture of their certificate that showed that it was valid from 5-26-2009 to 7-27-2010. So uh, it had expired on 7-27, and somebody trying to go to https colon slash slash twitter.com would have received this invalid certificate. So it's like, whoops. Um, I'm sure they've, uh, I, I presume they fixed it by now because I didn't check, but I would, I would, I would think they would have. Um, uh, also, just sort of in browsers moving forward news, Safari gets browser extensions. Uh, Safari was just updated to version 5.0.1 and you can now go to extensions.apple.com and uh, where Apple maintains a list of, of, of browser extensions for Safari that add all kinds of cool features to Safari. So Safari's jumped on the, the extension bandwagon. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's like, why, 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 maybe I've been playing with the beta or something. I feel oh, like okay. that's been around for a while, but maybe I'm... I, did, I do see the update. In fact, I'm waiting... Till after the show, I've learned not to do updates that require reboots. <laughs> yeah. Oh, actually, it does. It 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 it's a forces reboot. a full reboot yeah. of 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 your machine. So, um, and then the last little bit of news in the uh, oopsie category is you may have seen this: Leo Dell shipped motherboards that were infected. Oh, uh, how did that happen? They apparently some motherboards. In fact, it's the. Four of their servers, the PowerEdge R310, the PowerEdge R410, the 510, and the T410, they contain on the motherboard some, some flash memory that looks like, that is like some part of like boot process. It's not in the firmware, but for example, if you run either their, their unified server configurer 
or their 32-bit diagnostics. So it's probably something where like at boot time, you can, you know, hit F2 or F8 or something, or maybe press a special button and go into their own built-in diagnostics zone. Somehow they were, they were shipping replacement motherboards, which of course we know Dell has been doing lately because of the dry capacitor problem. Um, they were shipping replacement motherboards that had that code, their own, like, you know, special diagnostics uh, um, flash ROM uh, was infected with the W32 SpyBot worm. So in the first place, it was, it was Windows-specific. It would only affect Dell systems that had Windows running on those servers. Um, uh, and they've apologized and said that it affected, you know, a small percentage of customers. They've notified them all, blah, blah, blah. But uh, I also got a bunch of listeners uh, sending that little bit of news to me. So I wanted to acknowledge that. Great. And the IANA made some news this week by reminding us again that the Internet is running out of IPv4 yeah. addresses. Now, I, saw, I remember that this was a, a topic of conversation some years ago and has become... Uh, it's come it's back kind of, again. I thought we'd kind of thought, oh, we dodged a bullet by using all these routers. Yes, well, that exactly. So, so what has happened is that that the the worry sort of surfaces every so often, and people come up with solutions around it. I mean, in in fact, I think it's in Russia that I read um, that ISPs, whole ISPs, are using NAT in like in order to solve the IP depletion problem and i mean we know from our own experience what a what a boon nat routing is for for small offices and homes where we've got a whole ton of machines behind a nat router now the internet purists have never liked the idea of nat they've all regarded it as a, as a kludge because the original concept of the internet with a 32-bit IP, IP address was that, oh, my goodness, 4 billion. We're never going to run out of that. <laughs> How many computers That's could there be in the world? Billion, billion with a B. Yeah. You know, it's like we're never going to have 4 billion machines. <laughs> well, actually, we still don't. Um, no, in fact, I think it's something like we're approaching 2 billion computers in the world. It's not computers that are the problem, is it? Well, in fact, that's one of the one of the concerns is that now little things like webcams and, you know, temperature monitors and weather sensors and weather vanes and all these little sensors, they all like to have an IP, too. They hold up a like camera the, here that has a unique IP address. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah. so now. OK, so the we've talked a lot about and we will be talking in the future probably a lot more about IPv6 because that's regarded as the only real solution to this problem. Um, IP addresses, as we know, are are normally looked at as a set of a, a set of four bytes. And for example, the there have always been there there have remained up until just very recently. In fact, I think technically today still sixteen. Of the 256 possible first bytes 
in the internet address, like, you know, 4.79 point whatever, or, you know, Google has, you know, 8.8 and so forth. And, 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 and we know that a lot of our home routers are 192.168 and so forth. Um, I use a 10 dot network where, you know, the whole 10 dot is, has been set aside as being private and unroutable. Similarly, there were 16 other numbers that, that, that first byte that had never, that had still been reserved, never been allocated. And those are now, just now, having, they've been like divvied up where uh, Europe gets this many and Russia gets a couple and, and we get some. And so they're like handing out the, like the remaining top digits of the IP space. And the, and the point of this is that the rate of consumption now and the projected rate we never really know exactly what the rate's going to be but the the general consensus is and sort of like the average consensus is around this time next year around july of 2011 we're out wow at the rate we're going now kind of at the rate we're going now now again there is latitude because there are there are still sort of islands of unused IPs that could be squeezed. I have 64 here at home, Leo. I, I don't need 64. Now, now, now that I just confess. Internet hog. Internet hog. <laughs> you're an IP address hog. <laughs> Although I only have 16 at level three and I could really use more there. I, I should like, count them because I bet I have that many too. Yeah, I mean, so. We have a lot of internet connections here though. And so, you do too. Yeah, I mean, so you know th- that there are there are organizations that are still hoarding them. Although I did read, actually, I, if anyone's interested, Wikipedia has a very nice treatment. If you if you look for IPv4 underscore address underscore exhaustion, IPB, <laughs> IPv4 address exhaustion, they have a great treatment of this whole issue. Yeah. And I and Stanford, for example, gave up. Their big block. They had a, like a C class, a C block, right? Oh no, no, they had an A. They had an A block. Oh yeah, I mean, in fact, you know, BBN still has an A block. There've been people. That's how many who, addresses? 30, that's 62, 16 million 16, addresses. Sixteen million. Sixteen million addresses is a class A network. Holy cow! So yeah, that's twenty four bits because you've got you the got three you know, three dotted quads to yourself. Yes, exactly. So so three the lower three bytes are all yours, you know, but that's also how many are in a 10 dot network. I mean, you know, right. I've got one. I don't have, I mean, but lots of people have them. And, but, but you can also, have a 10 dot and I can have a 10 dot. We don't have to worry about conflict because it's not routable. Because it's exactly but, but Stanford's, whatever it is, 168 block. That's, they own it all. Yes. Jeez. And in fact, remember also that Hamachi, one of the clever things that Hamachi yeah. was doing yeah, was block. they were using five dot. Yeah. IPs. Well, that's not that's going to all break soon. So because routers have been ready for IPv6 for a while. Well, no? don't know. Um, I mean, the so what IPv6 does is and we'll obviously be covering this in extensive detail talking about yeah. the 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 migration from and what it takes. It takes us from 32 bits to 128. Right. And even though 32 doesn't, I mean, even though 128 doesn't seem like that much more than 32 bits, you know, remember that this is all 
that power of two thing. Every bit you add doubles the number of IPs. Right. So, you know, the fact is that's it's it's something like 10 to the 38 um, possible. It's just I mean, you know, instead of like 10 to the ninth where we are now, we're 10 to the 38th. Yeah. So Ten, pet, pet tech is are, telling me that that's 340 trillion trillion trillion. Yes, that's a number I've that's, seen. That's a lot. And and you divide it by the number of people on Earth, and we all get to have several trillion trillion <laughs> for just uh, just for ourselves. So Stanford, you can keep your your A block. <laughs> well, so what's going to happen is it's we're going to this will begin. You know, people are going to begin to get more worried about this. ISPs are going to like look at the amount of IPs they have. They may begin to push. Um, v6 compatibility. The problem is Google did a study not long ago. Um, I think it was in 08 that found only 1% of the internet was ready for IPv6. It's really not yet, Leo. Hmm. And in fact, I'm going to have to ask, my, you know, level three, my, my, um, my connectivity provider and, and the data center, you know, do I have IPv6 addresses? I probably do. I just don't know it because I, I would imagine someone like that is way on top of this and and following along. But it's uh, it did hit the news this week that uh, we were running out, and like around next summer, next September. I mean, like, that is to say, like oh ten. I mean, uh, twenty eleven rather. September, maybe July, September. Then we begin to have. A problem now again. There's still elasticity. People will like rummage around and find more IP addresses. But e even when I signed up, when I did my level three setup, this is now what maybe four years ago. I had to fill out. They made me justify hmm. my allocation of sixteen IPs, which was easy because of the stuff GRC does. But you know, so they they were already beginning to get more responsible it's not just like oh yeah here you go you can have a you can have a c block you know we got them coming out of our ears uh, not so much anymore interesting so uh a year is not as a lot of time really if we're gonna have to make that conversion. oh no it's not it's not and then lastly there have been some dialogue over in the security now news group at grc over how i kept talking about episode 260 as you know, four times or five times fifty-two is two sixty, and and naively believing that there were fifty-two weeks in the year, which you know I sort of seem to remember from elementary school. Yes, uh, but the fact is, when you take three hundred and sixty-five and a quarter, which we know is the number of days in a year, because every fourth year has an extra one, it has a February twenty-ninth. So you get the 365.25. If you divide that by seven days in the week, you do get 52.179 weeks per year. So what do we do? So, well, we multiply that by five because uh -huh. we're coming up on the end of five years. Okay. And that gives us 260.893 weeks. Okay. So, 260.893. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Okay. You know, if we're, I guess we have to round up. And so, it's more accurate to say 261 weeks for right. our five first years. five years. So, next episode will not 
not be, be our yeah. fifth year. We will not be beginning our sixth year. We will be ending our fifth year with episode 260, beginning our sixth year, not technically, and I guess we could figure out what hour it is on whatever. I bet the folks at Entertainment Tonight don't have to deal with this in their audience. <laughs> I bet they don't get emails saying, well, you know, technically. <laughs> well, that's why we have so much fun. I, know, I love it. So much fun with our people. So next episode, which is our 260th, is we the last episode of the fifth year. Our fifth year. And yes. in two weeks, we will celebrate do, do, do. our beginning of our sixth year. Hard to believe, Steve. I mean, I'm I'm amazed that we've been going that long. That's the, we will we will we are now approaching how long tech TV lasted. It only lasted and, six years. And you notice that we seem to be getting busier with security yeah, stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's it's going upwards. No, no fear of running out of material, that's for no. sure. I have a, a fun note from a listener of ours, Bill Cox, who's in Vancouver, whose who's, uh, subject line, actually just emailed, just bounced through uh, my sales uh, account this morning when I was updating my mail. What, what caught me was the subject was spin right on an island. And he said, Dear Steve, like most people that write to you, I'm a longtime spin right user and longtime security now listener. Never thought I'd have a Spinrite saves the day story, though. A couple of weeks ago, I was working with my staff at a client office, which is located on a small island near Vancouver. Our business is, a prof- is professional accounting, and we charge out our staff by the hour. There were four of us networking together peer-to-peer. Of course, as fate would have it, the staff person who was hosting our shared data resources had their four-month-old computer, which says new, their four-month-old computer suddenly give them a blue screen of death. Phoning Dell technical support suggested all kinds of things relating to completely powering down, removing the battery, etc. After every change, an attempt was made to reboot, and each time a BSOD appeared. At one point, the tech support even suggested that we reinstall Windows. A little hard to do without a functioning hard drive. <laughs> yeah. Reinstall Windows and a new hard drive is probably what he meant. But. Yeah. Eventually, they said they would rush courier a replacement computer to us. Wow. The problem was being on a small island meant that rush courier would take about 30 hours. Not to mention the fact that it didn't have that new replacement machine wouldn't have our irreplaceable data. As I did the math, I realized that the four of us together charged out at $900 per hour. (laughs) Therefore, a 30-hour wait. (laughs) $27,000. A 30-hour wait, yes, would cost thousands of dollars. Of course, the client for our faulty hardware, but still the four of us sitting around far from the office, represented a huge amount of lost revenue to that degree. Finally, I thought of Spinrite. I downloaded it on my computer, transferred it to a USB stick, and ran it on the BSOD machine. It took about four hours on the first sector. Holy, well, now we know where the problem lies. And the projection was... That it would take the better part of a year (laughs) to complete. However, once done with the first sector, 
obviously where the problem was. Yeah. It went through the rest of the hard drive in minutes. The result was we got the data off the bad computer and used another computer as the main data store. Of course, we also began backing up regularly now just in case. However, we used that previous problem computer for the rest of the week without wow. issue. Wow. Thank you for rescuing us while we were stranded, unquote, on the island. I appreciate that this product just works without any fancy bells or whistles. Isn't that neat? And, and, it, and yours truly, Bill Cox. And I did want to just mention also that this, this is something we see a lot. People go crazy when Spinrite starts saying it's going to take a year. But what it's doing is it's looking at how much it's gotten done right. and how long that has taken. And it multiplies that by the remaining number of sectors it has to do. Sort of, I mean, it's the only thing it can do is say, well, assuming that the rest of the drive is in the same condition that what it has seen already. But if you start off early on in the drive with like where the problems are, then once it gets past that, often, you know, its projection just drops dramatically as it's able to see that, oh, look, this is this is going much better than I thought. And so it was only four hours rather than, you know, a well, year. That's a good thing because I calculated out at $900 an hour, that would be $7,884,000 that they'd have to bill their clients. So it's probably a good thing. That's, see, yeah. that's a good $80 uh, purchase there. That spin right saved them, uh, uh, their client a lot of money. And they can use it over and over and over. Yeah, that's right. Steve, let's take a break. We do have some great questions from our listeners. Our 97th Q&A episode. Even that yep. number is kind of staggering. Yeah. Nine great questions and I'm sure nine spectacular answers from Mr. G. But before we get to that, may I recommend backing up so you don't, you don't have to deal with these problems in the future? Is that too much? I don't want to steal your thunder, Steve. I, I know you'll still sell plenty of copies of Spinrite, but I have to think if people were assiduous with their backups... Some of these problems would just go away, right? You just... At, yeah. I mean, you know, you'd say, well, I have the data here. This is why I do recommend Carbonite and uh, a Carbonite Pro for small businesses, Carbonite for the consumer. It's why I'm putting Carbonite... I did put Carbonite on Abby's laptop for a couple of reasons. First of all, laptops get stolen. I mean, uh, I, what was the figure we you were quoting? was something like 600,000 laptops a year are left at airports alone. Uh, but they just get lost and stolen. That's they're, they're portable. That's the easy thing to have happen. And as we know now, hard drives die. The problem is none of this is predictable. So if you don't have a good backup every moment, you're running a huge risk. So she's going off to college. I know she's going to be using that 13-inch Mac laptop for everything. You know, Facebook, calling home, papers, work, everything, music. It's it's really her life in there. So before she went, I, she's leaving the next week. I put Carbonite on there. We, we have it automatically now backing up to the net whenever she's online. Whether it's in the dorm room or a coffee shop, whatever, as long as she can get online, that data is being backed up to the Carbonite servers automatically. She doesn't even have to think about a local backup. I am encouraging her to bring an external hard drive and do that too. But you know how you know you think I should be backing up. I bet you're thinking right now, gee, I, when's the last time you backed up? Oh, I should be backing up. No, see, this is the beauty of Carbonite. Go right now to Carbonite.com. And uh, for, you can try it free for 15 days. You don't even need a credit card. Just need the word security now in the coupon code. You put it on your system, Mac or PC, and it just starts backing up. Unlimited amounts of personal data from your internal drive. Unlimited amounts of personal data from your internal drive for less than $5 a month. $55 a year. I thought that that was a bargain 
to for the peace of mind I'm going to get. Abby doesn't care. She doesn't know. <laughs> but for the peace of mind I'm going to get. Every system in your house should be backed up with Carbonite. And I want you to try it free for 15 days. If you decide you want to buy, use the word security now as your offer code. And you'll get two months free after the trial. And you get your file back with just a few clicks on any computer you can get online. So if that laptop gets stolen, you don't have to, you just go to another computer. You can go to the library. You can use your iPhone or your BlackBerry. They have free apps, Carbonite apps for that. And get that file back. That's huge. It's safe. It's easy to use. It's automatic. And your files are always available anywhere you can get online. Carbonite.com. Offer code security now. Try it now. And don't come whining to me. If you don't, because <laughs> I told you so. I told you. All right. I love that. Don't come, come whining to, whine to me. That's my new slogan for Carbonite. Don't, don't come, come whining whine to me. me. <laughs> and by the way, you know, I, I, and I know I have to tell this to the Security Now audience because they're smart. They probably heard me say, anytime you're at a coffee shop, it starts backing up. Of course it uses SSL for all its transactions. And it has additional AES-256 encryption if you want to really be private and you have the key and you alone. So you don't have to worry about where it's backing up. It's always secure. Now, question one for you, Steve. You ready? Yep. Glenn Edward, Nottingham, Maryland, asks, what are the odds? Dear Steve, when I first heard that Microsoft was going to drop its support of XP Service Pack 2, I thought, as many others probably did, I could live for some time with an unpatched version of Windows. I just want to say that again. <laughs> that should ring warning bells. An unpatched version of Windows and perhaps take a chance on applying a Service Pack 3 later if it became necessary. Worst case would be to start looking for another used PC that could handle SP3 like some of yours, mine, cannot. And we, SP3 was trouble, troubling on uh, Service Pack 2. Was, uh, Service Pack 3 was troubling on XP. Yep. So what do you think the odds were that within a couple of weeks of the official SP2 patch cutoff, the worst ever Windows worm would surface? <laughs> it's almost as if the bad guys had been sitting on this thing for months, perhaps even a year or so, until Microsoft began cutting off XP and Win2K support. Is it my imagination or have PC attacks become more intense these days? Thank you. That's an interesting well, conspiracy theory. Do you think they waited? This is the, I have to say, Leo, this is the least... Uh, over the top of a number of, <laughs> really? of theories that I that I received, um, yeah. <laughs> um, some people thought that maybe Microsoft. I, I did read someone saying that Microsoft always knew about this and left it in there and ju and uh, waited to spring it on the world by like leaking this out. Oh, and, and it's like, um, no. you know, I, 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 I it it to me that completely stretches credibility or credulity. I just it seems un, unlikely in the extreme. It's a variant that, of the thing that the antivirus companies make the viruses so that they'll sell product. Both of I think those are bogus theories. They really are. Nobody's doing that. Yeah, and Microsoft, much as they definitely want to get us to upgrade and and move forward. They're certainly far more damaged by, I mean, just in terms of reputation mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. people thinking, okay, that's the last straw. Now I'm yeah. moving to Linux. Yeah. That's it. Or, or to Mac. You know, thanks anyway. But so I, I just, I, I don't see any way that, that, that it makes sense. It is the one thing that, that sort of feeds this sort of thinking is, frankly, is a, a lack because most people are not coders, most people haven't been there, a lack of appreciation of how absolutely feasible it is 
And this is one of the things that I preach on this podcast is how feasible it is for these kinds of things to exist for 10 years and never be seen. I mean, it really is possible. Oh, absolutely. Sure. I mean, it just, you know, and so we're, we're, the, we're wringing these problems out of our systems. I desperately wish that Microsoft would just stop changing Windows. Of course, it's completely antithetical to their business model to do so. Thus, the whole pressure to upgrade moving forward. If they would, if they would stop messing with it, then over time, it would get stable. But that's just not going to happen. You know, people, uh, there was one question that I think it was on one of the Q&As uh, that we were not unable to finish a couple of weeks back. Someone said, well, you know, why is it that Windows 7 is so much better than, than Vista was? And it's like, well, remember how bad Vista was? <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, Vista was a real change from XP and it was a security catastrophe and and seven is just sort of like, like giving a fresh paint of coat. I mean, a fresh coat of paint to <laughs> to Vista. They didn't really change anything because they right. were f- scared to, right. you know. And so they sort of like fixed the things that they messed up with. So by no means is is seven anything like the change from Vista that Vista was from XP and. Vista's change from XP was a, was, you know, I mean, we did podcast after podcast about the disaster that it was, and we haven't for seven. Because, That's true. You know, there really hasn't, you know, I mean, yes, it's got, you know, we're doing vulnerabilities that are common to all of these, much like this link shell exploit is, because it's been in there for 10 years, but nothing Windows 7 specific, because, yeah, there really isn't anything Windows 7 specific. Right. I mean, it, f- frankly, Windows 7 is Vista. Yes, it's, it's. I mean, it's not a service pack, but it's it's Vista polished. It's it's improved. It's got all the uh, fixes in there, and of course, they it would be better. Cleaned up the UAC a little bit, yeah. so it's not bugging people to death, and they don't have to turn it off. And yeah. and yeah, and they do some 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 next generation UI things, but the core, which was dramatically enhanced for Vista from XP, they've pretty much said, okay, we're not going to change that now. Yeah. Oh, I have to read another question. <laughs> okay, let me move on. Uh, question two. Stephen Conway in Dublin, Ireland, found, demonstrated, and proved, and got a bug fixed in LastPass. Steve's security now is a beacon of sanity in a world gone mad. Wow. Uh, I really enjoy listening to educated, balanced, and reasoned guys discussing important information. Thank you. I, too, am a spin-right owner, and like every week... You have a spin on spin right. I have many I could add, mostly boringly and predictable. Family member. Oh, my God. My computer won't boot. I've lost anything. Everything. Wait. Give me a day or two. He's, I'm sorry. I'm making him sound like a leprechaun. He's not. Later. Family member. Wow. Me. Back up your data. Anyway, not the reason I'm here today, Steve. I previously wrote and sent you a long, frustrated note, but skip that now. To give quickly the full picture regarding the invalid password from LastPass, I've attached their explanation. After many emails and videos of the error, I could prove that my password was correct and there was an issue on their servers. I've actually had that happen too. So I'm ah. glad to see that uh, he, he noted it. it. You know, it comes and actually it hasn't happened lately, but it came and went for me. And I thought, why? Well, it's valid. And, and you're about to find out why. I must say the support from LastPass was extremely good. They really responded to my many emails and followed up the problem, and this is a free service. Yeah, he's not paying for the premium. The customer service turned a negative situation into a positive one. Take care, Stephen. 
And the reply sums up what had happened. Stephen, we believe we resolved the issue and added automated checks to ensure it doesn't reoccur. We use multiple data centers and database servers linked by replication. Uh huh. But one of the servers didn't have correct data. As a result, unfortunately, yourself and one other user would intermittently hit the bad server and get the invalid password error. I'm going to add myself to that list. I just didn't complain about it because it didn't happen every time, right? right? This is why it would sometimes work for you, sometimes not. I say this is unfortunate because the invalid password error would happen only to you and one other user out of over 700,000 users. Thanks for being persistent to help us resolve the issue. Wow. So two people complained and they fixed it. Yep. Again, we receive about a dozen help. It won't let me log in requests today. And every single one of them ends up being mistyped passwords. Not in my case. I cut and paste. And so perhaps you could understand our initial skepticism. In any case, we're very sorry for any inconvenience. Let us know if you encounter further issues. Thanks. Last pass. Wow. So nice what he... So what, what, what he did, and I, I did find, I went back and found this lengthy email of frustration, you can imagine, because oh, yeah. he's like, he's sure he's doing it right. right. And they're saying, you're probably just not. And he's like, no, I sh- I'm sure I am. Right. And then the other thing is that apparently what they have is because they're using replication and distributed data centers, sometimes the... The routing of his of his authentication would go to a server right. which correctly had his data, and sometimes it wouldn't. So he he was also having to deal with the fact that sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't, which you know hurt his credibility further. But he stayed on it. He made videos of what he was doing. He he refused to give up, Thank and he show, showed them. That the, okay, this is you know it's really not working, right. and I really need it to work. And they said, "Oh, it really does look like it's really not working." Right. And then they scratched their heads and dug in and found it and fixed it. Yep. So I'm you know a, you know props to Stephen for pursuing it and to the LastPass guys for listening to him. He he gave them no choice, but for also getting on it and fixing it for all of our sakes. Because that would be pretty annoying if yeah. if, uh, if it didn't work. Well, it's funny because it's a, uh, it was happening to me, and I, you know, these things happen to me, and I, I, you know, I'm just used to it. This is kind of one of the things I think that happens to sophisticated or longtime computer users is we put up with crap. <laughs> it's like Control C. I'm so conscious now right. that Control C doesn't always work, right? <laughs> and I and I realize how much accommodation I have right. done of that right. because I, that's normal with computers. <laughs> Yeah, it's often the uh, newer users who become very frustrated, and 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 that's why I have a lot of sympathy for uh, new users or inexperienced users because I forget that we're just kind of uh, inured to the fact that they crash and they fail. In fact, it's much better now than it used to be. So we feel oh. like, oh, this is great. Yeah, it's way better. Remember, I mean, right. you, you, you know, Windows used to be just locking up all the time. Oh, yeah, I, oh. exactly. So yeah, but I but I'm re- always grateful for the uh, for the user who is pers- who is persistent. And it says, no, I'm going to fix this. And I, yeah. and I do encourage that. And we benefit from that. So thank you. Yeah, because I was getting that error. And I know I, I – see, I was second-guessing myself. I was thinking, man, I must have mistyped that. <laughs> but, but I – so what I did is I put the password in a text uh, field in my, in my Evernote, and I would cut and paste it. And sometimes it would work and sometimes it wouldn't. So I knew there was something weird. And it, it is fixed now. It hasn't happened in a long time. And for any of our other listeners who may have encountered this as well, uh, we've got good news. It looks like it's fixed. Yay. Question three, Rodney uh, Morton in Round Rock, Texas, which is just around the corner from Dell, I believe, was warned about a Security Now PDF. 
by McAfee. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to laugh. Hi, all. As a longtime listener, I was surprised to receive a site advisory message when saving the PDF version of the transcription for episode 255. I did note that my McAfee total protection had completed an automatic update just prior to my saving the sn-255.pdf to my system. Being security conscious and aware of the Adobe woes, I thought I'd make you aware. Not that McAfee is 100% infallible, as I'm having some licensing issues with those folks for not wanting to use the words I really had in mind. So, this folks. was an opportunity just to talk about false positives. Mm, yeah. Because they occur all the time. And it's no one's fault. Frankly, what, it, what the antivirus companies are doing is phenomenal, in my opinion. I, I'm so glad... That's not a business I chose to pursue mm-hmm. because it's just it, it is so difficult. Um, you know, anyone who is offering software or now even non-software content like PDFs encounters this. I get a report, oh, maybe a couple a year. Someone will say, oh, you've got a virus in, you know, like in Securable. OK, now that I haven't changed Securable in four years, you know, since it first, I first wrote it, it's been sitting there unchanged. And so, you know, I doubt that I have a virus insecurable. And sure enough, I, you know, Greg normally fields these things for me and he'll say, well, did you try updating your virus patterns or report that you think you have a false positive? And then they come back the next day. Oh, yeah, it went away now. It's like, okay, yeah. So, you know, this just happens. The, 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 the reason I thought this was worth mentioning was just sort of to remind people that that the job that's being done is Herculean on the part of antivirus. The idea that they're looking through a and a rapidly escalating volume of binariness. You know, I mean, it used to be K, now it's megs and hundreds of megs of data on the fly, looking for patterns that match some that they have in this huge, growing volume of possible match patterns. I mean, so I don't even know how the software does this. When, when you think about what it's doing, that it's, it's scanning files at that speed, looking for, for any of thousands of possible pattern matches of random binary data that happens to be sort of the signature unquote you know a which is just you know a run of bytes that is known to sort of be reflective of a possible virus i mean it's just incredible that they do as well as they do so i i'm i am never annoyed or upset when a false positive occurs, I, we explain it to anyone who has used our content that it's probably not us. You know, we'll, we'll check it, but it's very likely that this is just, I mean, statistically, statistically, it has to happen. You have to have some, some likelihood that some of the, some particular, you know, confluence of bytes in for example, in this case, a PDF will by chance match a signature 
that is also a similar confluence of bites that occurs in some virus somewhere on the planet. It's just going to happen. So, you know, hats off to the AV guys. I think they do a fantastic job. I, I like I said, I don't want that job. Yeah. And and they, you know, they it's you you've got to be sensitive enough not to miss something and but not too sensitive so that you're generating false positives at a rate that then annoys people more than the benefit you're providing. And that's a fine line, which I think they do a really great job of walking. You're kinder than I am, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm a developer. I you get a lot of false positives. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ding them a little bit because I think what happens is um, – Different companies use different virus signatures, and different companies use shorter or versus longer virus signatures, and have different heuristics. And different certainly. heuristics. And I suspect what happens here is that sometimes, in order to improve the speed of the scans, they sh- or the size of the downloads, they shorten the signatures to the point where they're more likely to get false positives. And it has been my experience that some companies get more false positives than others. And you've you've been dinged many times by McAfee, right? It's not um, the first time McAfee's dinged you. I don't even really pay attention to who. So. Okay. <laughs> I seem to remember this happening a few times before from, from a, from a well, yeah, particular I mean, company. Anybody who's providing content will be hearing from people saying, oh, yeah. you got a virus in that file. It's like, no, I mean, it, yeah. it happens no, no, all the it time. It does happen. It's like, well, uh, you know, it's, no, not, it's never happened to me. And, and, um, and, and I just don't know why, but I, but I think it's something about, I don't know, I, I don't know. Oh my, it's just I think that you could have fewer false positives, but at this, but at a consequence, the size of the uh, signature file, or perhaps the speed of the uh, search, or perhaps your heuristics. Would, I don't think this is a heuristics thing, but maybe it is. Your heuristics might not may, may need to be tuned. But you're you're kinder than I am, and you're the expert, so I'm not going to say anything. Moving along. <laughs> Bruce Harrison, Durban, South Africa. You're not going to say anything more. Anything mean. more. Good. Thank you for, for correcting that. I shall zip it for the time being. Bruce Harrison in Durban, South Africa, question four, brilliantly wonders whether AES just became less secure. This is the, the encryption technology that uh, I think in the past we've agreed is, is the state of the art. Yep. Greetings, he says. Now that Intel have added the AES instruction set to their chips going forward, does this mean that cracking AES just got easier for the bad guys? Thanks for uh, everything you do for the security community. Warm regards from South Africa, Bruce. So I didn't even know this. So they've added this into the uh, into the instruction set. Well, yeah, we talked about this last week. Oh, okay. The um, the the i the, the core the the Intel Core i five and i seven chips have a vocabulary of new instructions which TrueCrypt version seven uh, has begun using, ah, and okay. and so this accelerates the functioning of an AE of the AES crypto algorithm because they because one of the reasons the AES was chosen was that it would it lent itself to to efficient implementation in hardware. So Intel jumped on this and said, well, let's do some custom AES instructions, which literally where one instruction replaces a big block of instructions otherwise. TrueCrypt gets a four to eight gain, four to eight X gain in performance. But that also means that brute force cracking gets a four to eight X gain. Oh, it does. Well, yeah, oh. because 
because the, the as far as we know, the only attack against full-strength AES is brute force. And remember that, for example, a 256-bit key, um, a 256-bit AES uses 14 rounds of encryption, meaning that the same wow. thing is done 14 times. And so fewer rounds of AES have now been analyzed. I think like seven rounds or eight, um, they're, they're, they're able now, cryptographers, to sort of track the, the migration of the bits through each round up to about that point. And then after that, they lose track. So it is the case that cryptographers who designed AES understood that, and they chose 14 rounds for 256-bit keys. I think it's 10 rounds for 128-bit keys and maybe 11 for 192-bit keys because AES can run at 128, 192, or 256. So, so, so what Bruce noted is that, well, anyone who's attacking AES in different ways who would be attacking it by actually using it, which is a, what a brute force attack does, also gets accelerated by virtue of these instructions in Intel. So for those of us using AES, it's a benefit to us, for example, with TrueCrypt, because version 7 will now run faster if you've got an I, one of the supported core i5 or i7 chips. But similarly, somebody trying to use brute force cracking does have a speed gain. Now, the fact is, 256-bit keys are, I mean, really, even 128-bit keys are so much more strong than than is feasible to, if they're good keys, if it's a like a random 128 bits, so much more strong than it is feasible to crack that this still isn't a problem. You know, having a four or eight times gain means, okay, now it's only, you know, one eighth of a bajillion years. <laughs> instead now it's of only, now it's only halfway to the end of the universe instead yeah, of all the way. <laughs> instead of a whole bajillion, it's only one eighth of a bajillion. It's like, okay, fine. Good luck with that. So that's interesting. I, I, I assume maybe it was symmetric or asymmetric that, uh, that it helped with uh, creating a key, but not with, uh, you know, re reversing that or something I, like that. But I it is symmetric. It's a great observation that Bruce made. Yeah, yeah. Good. Uh, Lee Elliott in Columbia, Missouri, has uh, thought about the new Windows LNK shell vulnerability and virtual surfing. Stephen Lee, I've been listening for a few years. I'm caught up with listening to, if maybe not fully understanding all of the episodes. This window, <laughs> join the club, by the way, Lee. Uh, this uh, Windows shell vulnerability has me a little freaked out. I I'm looking at a bunch of white page icons right now on my Windows 7 machine. This seems a bit draconian. I guess he applied the Microsoft workaround. Fix, the temporary fix. fix. Yep. Assuming that I'm not vulnerable to a sneaker net attack, would it adequately protect me to do all my surfing on a Linux virtual machine? Of course, this would mean not opening documents, etc., outside of that virtual machine that might have an offending shortcut, uh, and I don't have any network shares. Basically, I'm trying to avoid inadvertently surfing to a malicious web page. Or am I misunderstanding the threat or the protection that surfing from a virtual Linux machine might provide? Hey, that's a great suggestion. Lee Elliott, Columbia 
Columbia, Missouri, spin right owner, carbonite user, audible listener, right on. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, absolutely, doing your surfing in a Linux virtual machine is about the best thing I could imagine for, for protection. Better even than surfing in a Windows virtual machine, because a Windows virtual machine will be a virtual machine known to be vulnerable. You'd be counting on the virtualization to protect you, right. which you is probably a good bet. But, gee, if all you really want to do is surf, then, you know, Linux is going to boot faster. So just use a nice Linux running in a virtual machine, and, and it doesn't have the shortcut problem at all. Right. So by, by, by essentially switching to Linux for your surfing by virtue of running it in a virtual machine running on top of windows the, you have complete containment of surfing so you have the security of just in general being on linux which is which is not being attacked to the same degree that windows is so there there's a bonus there um and you're in you have virtualization so there's a bonus there and you're in an os that doesn't have the link shell shortcut problem so that's just that's a huge win absolutely i would recommend that if that's something that you want to do um you're completely safe from this particular problem and probably lots of other ones that we don't know about yet if i were you i would just throw out the windows and run run linux (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) is the thought uh, Nathan Hartley, uh, Lansing, Michigan, question six. Uh, he notes that open DNS filters for DNS rebinding. Uh, he he uh, is quoting the open DNS settings, uh, suspicious responses, block internal IP addresses, and it explains when enabled DNS responses containing IP addresses listed in RFC 1918. I think that that's the private IP addresses that they're talking about will be filtered out. This helps to prevent DNS rebinding attacks. For example, if badstuff.attacker.com points to 192.168.1.1, which is internal to your network, this option would filter out that response. Isn't that cool? Isn't that really cool? And it does all three of the private addresses, the 10 dot, the 172.16, and the 192.168. So I didn't know about this. Um, I jumped over to my... I just hadn't noticed it before. I jumped over to my OpenDNS account. Now, sadly, this option is not enabled by default. Uh, So they've left it off. But I realized that I can add testing for this to the DNS benchmark that I'm working to finish right now. That is, um, there's, uh, um, and we're going to be talking about rebinding attacks Probably next week, unless the the upshot of the Black Hat and DefCon conferences, <laughs> we might have such, more to talk about, is <laughs> <laughs> such that we have to hold that one off for something even yeah. more fun and interesting, and hopefully not dire. Um, but because I want to really explain in detail what that is. But the but what's brilliant about this, and I appreciate the Open DNS folks having this notion, is there is no reason why a remote DNS server should ever serve you a private IP that is like an IP within your own network 
You know, you're asking for public domain names. They're, they're, and so by definition, you know, Amazon.com or Google or whatever can, can never be a non-routable IP because you're asking for the IP in order to send packets out to it. So if it's, if it's non-routable, they can't go anywhere. And so the only thing that can happen is mischief. And so I think it's a, a tremendous idea for DNS servers to not allow those um, non-routable IPs. Now, what I'm going to do at GRC, I already have a, a sort of a pseudo DNS server uh, that I built some time ago, which is the way my versioning system works the way um for example when you run the dns benchmark it it's it asks for the ip address of dnsbench.version.grc.com it actually asks for it as an ip address and so in in, in a single packet and in a single packet i res- respond with the latest version of the utility so i'm using dns sort of as a communications means i realized that that I could test DNS servers to see, like OpenDNS, to for for users to verify that they that it was uh, or not filtering because you would you would ask your DNS server for some funky domain name at GRC, which would return an IP like one nine two dot one six eight dot one dot one. So. So you so for example your DN, you would ask your DNS server for for that domain the IP of that domain it would ask GRC GRC would return a private IP on purpose the question is does your do, DNS server forward that to you or say uh don't think so yeah and so OpenDNS has the option of not doing so. So I just want to let all of our listeners who are OpenDNS users know that under the security tab where you're configuring your network, on the security tab, the last checkbox of three is not enabled by default, but by all means, turn that on. And you you've know, got immediate rebinding protection. Mine's turned on. and I don't. I, maybe oh. I just thought to turn it on. I don't know. Okay, mine wasn't, and okay. I... And I don't think I would have turned it off. Right. So yeah. I was assuming that it was not on it's by default. probably the case. Hey, can I ask you something, though? <laughs> I'm a little scared because I just logged in to, to, sh- to see this on OpenDNS, and I've got malware botnet activity detected on the Twit network uh, today at 2.43 a.m. UTC, which is just now. And it, and it, and it says an, an IP address. What, what would that mean? That would mean an attempt to access a botnet from my network? Uh, malware botnet, botnet activity detected activity that's what it would sound so, like to me like it, like something on my because what D- open dns is looking at dns requests from my your, systems yes so that would mean that something in your network is has asked for domains that they've identified as as like botnet control hmm. So that's not good. No, and it's you know what this is another reason why open DNS is fantastic. All of our DNS requests come through there, yeah. and uh, it's just notified me that it saw some suspicious activity on the network. Now I have to figure out exactly uh, w- what system it came from. They do give, I think they give me more information. I'll have to look at it. Cool. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Very nice. Yeah, yeah, nicely done. 
And I did want to mention just one thing I forgot to say about the IP depletion thing. The best thing that ever happened to end user security was NAT routers. Mm-hmm. You know, we've we've mm-hmm. talked about that so much that you know the uh, that one of the things that you know the the internet purists who believe that oh no NAT is fundamentally evil. It's like messing up the packets. You're rewriting packets. You're you're changing ports around. That's just wrong. Every machine ought to have its own IP. And what that means, though, is that any machine is directly accessible to any other. And it's like, okay, uh, well, we. The good news is we now know how how insanely insecure that would be. Yeah. And so there's no way that even if NAT is no longer necessary, I imagine we will still end up with hardware, little hardware firewalls at our borders, which protect our land, rather than just having, you know, all the packets that want to wander in off the internet able to directly come in and probe all the machines in our network. I mean, that would be the alternative, and that would be nuts. I mean, I'm delighted with the with the with the security that a NAT router inherently provides, right. I don't want to see that go away. Really. Hugely valuable, yeah. and, and it doesn't obviate the need for other security. But it's a boy. It's great that it's there to begin with, right? Yeah. Moving along, let's see. Ray uh, Garrett or Garrett in Miami, Florida, wonders how much damage the Shell LNK exploit could really do as long as your UAC is turned on. Steve, how much damage? Well, I just said that. Assuming the user doesn't click on a UAC prompt, elevating the malware to an administrative uh, level. Uh, I'm assuming it has no way to install a rootkit on the machine, right? Because UAC would stop that or embed itself deep into the bowels of the operating system. It can only perform the same actions as a uh, limited user would be able to perform. Are there any no problems with UAC that would allow the malware to elevate itself to administrator without explicit permission through a UAC dialog pop-up? It seems to me UAC would severely limit the damage that can be done Using the new Windows shortcut vulnerability. Well, that seems sensible. What's the case? Well, the I guess my feeling is that that another way of asking this question or sort of flipping it around would be to say, well, if we've got if 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 we know that the the shell the shell link vulnerability is only able to execute under the permissions of the current user which is what we do know about it, then does that mean we're comfortable having malware running as us? And I would say, I would use an expletive here. (laughs) Heck no. (laughs) In front of the word no. Yeah. So uh, we're glad UAC is there. And we're glad that it's... you know, for most things that are asking permission, they do so, and we have to give it to them. But there's there's just so many ways that something could lodge itself in our machine as us, right. and then like wait for permission or wait for us to reboot as an admin or wait for us to do something. You know, there's like you just don't want anything to get a foothold. Because footholds are bad, yeah. And so, so I I would never suggest that we don't care that we that oh our machines encrusted with malware. <laughs> but look, we're a limited user, so it can't do anything evil. It's like oh, just give it time. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> but it, but it does bring up the point that if you're using Windows Vista or Windows Seven, you're probably a little bit safer than if you're using uh, previous versions of Windows, which didn't Absolutely. have UAC. Microsoft one of the one of the painful yet useful things Microsoft has done is to slowly march forward yeah. with tightening windows down and we we you know we it it's always causes conflicts it causes problems but you know and people complain but then you know Microsoft negotiates back a little ways or does whatever they have to or make it makes it a little less noisy but yes we're we're really moving forward and that's a good thing yeah yeah it is uh, let's see, Paul in, uh, question eight, Paul in Ottawa, Ontario, with a last pass, trust no one, rebuttal. Hi, Steve, just getting caught up on Security Now episodes after some vacation time off. A couple of points you might be able to clarify about LastPass for me. One, well, it's all nice that LastPass folks explain how your passwords are encrypted and saved, but it's one thing to say this is how it's being done, another that it's actually being done that way. Is there a defined way to know for sure? I'm not saying that LastPass would be up to no good, but hypothetically speaking, let's say someone buys LastPass as a company, changes the code to the browser plugins that would allow them to get your login information. You'd think everything was okay. You'd get a notice that the plugin needs updating to support new features or something. Isn't that a potential threat? If the, secondly, if the plugin uses SSL to communicate with LastPass, how can I check the certificate? Third, also in reference to some websites not allowing special characters and passwords, I'd question the use of such a website for the simple reason they may not be hashing your login credentials. If the password is hashed before it gets started in a database, it wouldn't matter what characters are in it. That's a good point. Your thoughts, Paul from Ottawa. Well, this was a good question, and many people said, okay, Steve, you've explained the technology of LastPass, You've explained how it is that they're able to hold our data and not have access to it. How do we know that's what they're doing? And that's a very good question. Because yeah. um, you can't review, other, it's not open source, you can't review the source code, right? Correct. It's, well, it, correct. The plugins are not open source. Mm -hmm. The the scriptlets are, and they they have arguably done everything they can to be open Kimona with us. I mean, they've, they've, you know, created a page where you can, you can look, you can like, you know, exercise their code, see that the, the code that they provide on this page is, executes exactly the same way. But so people are saying, and I think this is more of a theoretical argument, or I'm going to take it that way. It's like, yes, but how can you absolutely know? And the answer is, we can't. I mean, I'm running Windows. I'm assuming Microsoft is on my side. Lots of our listeners are running Spinrite, and they're assuming I'm on their side, or they're running my, all the little freeware stuff that I've written. And they're, you know, there's an implied trust. When you're using someone's software, the, our systems are not designed to protect themselves and their users from the software that runs on them. They're just not. They were designed at a time when we, when we inherently trusted the software we were running. They were designed, the architectures were created before the internet and before security was an issue. And, and even systems that 
always had some security, like Linux, um, like like Unix from day one, where you had the notion of a root user and security was bound into it from from the beginning. Um, unfortunately, the need of convenience has softened those borders, and and Microsoft's own evolution has moved more of the system into the kernel where it's causing much more havoc than had they kept it out in user space, which was their original security model that was a lot stronger theoretically than, than where they are today. So, um, you know, yes, theoretically LastPass could go to the dark side, change the way plugins work and capture all of our usernames and passwords. Um, I, I, I don't think they will. I hope they don't. <laughs> pray they don't. Uh, yeah, I, it's just you know. I mean, I guess could you could you is, with Wireshark or something? Could I guess you really couldn't spot that kind of stuff? Oh, you definitely could if you were insanely concerned. Right. Uh, intercept the SSL traffic uh, in Microsoft's library before it gets encrypted yeah. and. Always monitor it. Always decrypt it yourself. Always look at it on the fly. Always verify that nothing else is happening. And, like, create your own overlord to, like, impose itself between your archive and theirs. And I guess my feeling is, boy, look around you at all the other stuff you trust. Right. With with much less, I think with much less reason to trust it. How many of us are running freeware that we just found on the net somewhere from people we don't even know at all? True. I mean, at least everyone listening to me has some idea who I am. And so, you know, you might say, gee, I really believe Steve's not going to play any games with his software. Mm -hmm. But I have run a lot of stuff that is written by people. I have no idea who they are. And, you know, compared to the level of trust that I think LastPass folks have, have reasonably established, I'm very comfortable with, with using their solution. So, Last question. I think this one's a quick answer, too. Uh, from Robert Sylvester in Warwick, Rhode Island, my old stomping grounds, uh, wonders about Sandboxy. Steve, doesn't the use of Sandboxy, or uh, which is a uh, sandboxing program, or Windows Steady State, which is the program that lets you reinstall Windows every time you reboot, or kind of reset it to a known good state, prevent permanent problems with remote code execution via the LNK and PIF file vulnerability. I always assume that if you don't save anything or expose private data, you're always safe. P.S. Paid Sandboxy Sandboxes USB drives, so that would help in uh, preventing the vector anyway. Yes? I don't think so. Okay. Um the problem is, and this is the I chose this question because it, it teaches us, it reminds us something important about security, which is we we need to be conscious of what it is that is being protected. So, if, for example, in the case of Sandboxy, Sandboxy, and we, and we did an episode on this some time ago, it very carefully limits what the programs running under its management are able to do. It filters their access to the operating system, preventing them from doing things. But it still uses the operating system. It's assuming that the operating system itself is benign. And what we have with the .lnk problem is the operating system has an error. So Sandboxy could be written 
or updated much as the Sophos guys did to to intercept a defect in the operating system and protect the user. But today, I'm sure it doesn't. So I'm sure you could run if if you were had a, a browser exploitable .lnk problem and you ran that in sandboxy it would have the operating system render the image of the shortcut because the operating system does and you'd get exploited even in sandboxy because that isn't what sandboxy was designed to prevent that's just something outside of its purview completely. In the case of Windows Steady State, well, you'd have an infected machine until you rebooted. And you don't want that either. Because who knows what kind of mischief things could get up to between then and now. So, uh, But between then and the time that you reset yourself. So, yes, yeah, Steady State, um, much like, you know, like booting from a CD, would you're not making permanent changes, but... Um, you'd, I'd be very uncomfortable letting malware rummage around in my system, you know, on all my network, especially even if I knew I was going to be expunging it when I restarted the system. So, um, much better to, um, you know, shut this thing down and not let it get a foothold again, foothold is sort of the key, right? It's your beachhead and uh, don't give it a, don't give it an inch. (laughs) Steve Gibson is the man in charge at GRC.com. That's his site. You can get uh, 16 kilobit versions of this show for the bandwidth impaired transcripts and all the show notes at GRC.com slash security now. If you want to leave a question for our next Q&A episode, two episodes hence, just go to GRC.com slash feedback. And, of course, if you want to subscribe to Security Now, you can go to twit.tv slash SN. We've got audio and video versions available. We also invite you to watch us live because I watch the chat room and we often feedback questions from the chat room into uh, the show. And uh, the live uh, stuff is done at live.twit.tv. This show is Wednesdays. That's when we record at 2 p.m. Eastern time, uh, 11 a.m. Pacific time. That's 1800 UTC at live.twit.tv. Steve, thank you. You guys have been posting the podcast um, earlier, haven't you? Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> You're asking me. I used to have something to do with that. That was back when it was just a one-man show or a two-man show. But now that it's a 12-man show, I have no idea. I, for, for, for what it's worth, I, um, I've been noticing that it's been going up sometimes you know, later in the day on Wednesday. So I just yeah. wanted to let our listeners know. My that, instruction uh, you know, is that as soon as it's done, put it out. Don't hold on to it. Why not? Yeah. yeah. And so um, because our staff is so efficient uh, and has gotten so good, I think, at... Uh, editing and i is i don't know if it's tony that does this i think it might be or eric or uh dan we have three editors now and and then jam or b john uh is the one who puts the uh feed information out and i just told john you know if it's done if it's up on the server why hold back yep so that might be what's going on don't necessarily cool. count on it we guarantee uh barring major technical <laughs> snafus which we've had in the past that it will be out on thursday but yeah if it comes out wednesday hey yeah. why not Look for it. Thank you, Steve. Great to see you. We'll see you next week. Oh, what are you going to talk about next week? Uh, next week, I think we're going to we're going to cover in detail the the neat hack of DNS rebinding, which has been around for a while. Unless DefCon and yeah. uh, the Black Hat conferences bring something to light that we really have to talk about instead. So, and I don't I, know, know, I don't know if I warned you ahead of time, but I will be out of town next week. Tom Merritt will be here. 
Hellman. Oh, okay. I didn't think we were losing. Wait you a until, minute. No, no. I'm. I know you're right. I will be here. You're right. I'm not. Hey. I'm taking a red eye. I was. I was tracking you. So yes, uh, you're absolutely right. We're the, we're leaving be. after the show. I'm taking a red eye, which is such a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> and the week after too. You're not leaving until the the evening. I think of on um, Wednesday. I think I'll be okay. Yay. Not, at, we're going to keep up with our never having missed a show in five plus years. 5.179 or whatever it is. <laughs> Steve, we'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Security.